You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. I'm waiting. You're waiting for what? I'm waiting for you to talk. The red button's been pushed. Are you ready for me to do jazz hands and start singing? Apparently you've turned fancy on me, Bracken. We we are fancy people, Kirk, Lisa and I. I pegged you for that since the day I met you. I got many messages yesterday after she posted on Instagram. Like, whoa, look, look at you wearing a a jacket. I must have missed this. Were you looking dapper or something for this occasion? I was semi-dapper. Okay, continue. We Lisa and I did a fancy, a fancy person adult day last night. We went and saw Hamilton. It's a sh- uh, sharp contrast from typically camping as your dates. Well, you know how they say get you someone that can do both? Yes. We can do both, Kirk. Mm-hmm. We can rough it or we can we can throw on the tux and hit Broadway. What is that uh, cake song, short skirt, long jacket? You want to find yourself a girl with a, with a short skirt and a long jacket? Is that Lisa? Well, we, she had the jacket, I had the skirt. It looked, uh, makes it sense. <laughs> makes sense. It was good, though. It was it was good. I I have not been to a musical since oh, middle school. I enjoyed it. You did. What was your favorite part about it, other than the the skirt that you got to wear? It was just enjoyable. I I would not have ever considered myself a theater person, but she's been listening to the soundtrack a lot, and it was I don't. It was like watching a a more personally engaging movie. It was, okay. I don't know how else to describe it. I wouldn't have put money on me enjoying it, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I never get excited for things like that, and when I'm there, I have a profound appreciation for what is happening, and I'm 100% engaged, and then for some reason, I just like reset after I leave, and I forget mm. that I enjoy it, and then I go back to thinking I won't, and I'm always wrong. What have you seen? What have I seen? What have I been on, Brack? And I've been on Broadway in New York. What? Yeah, I was. Uh, I played the part You've been of been on Broadway. Yeah, I played the part of the hyena in Lion King. I don't know if you know this. No. It it, it was a uh, it was in my bachelor days. We did a uh, we did a trip to Broadway, and we got taught routines of the hyena and something else, and then we had to sing Elton John's "Can You Feel the Love Tonight" solo for our bachelorette, and got judged by the actual cast of the lion king so we were up on skate stage being taught by the choreographers i got notable mention but i was not the winner i guess i could Mm -hmm. keep a melody and my dance moves were just above average but not good enough to win so i had to then i had to watch her with another man while i was in the crowd and the winner of that competition got to actually be in the lion king with her and i fell short by like one spot i think that's my experience this is illuminating yeah i mean it's not it's not something i sought out but if you ever want to see me sing can you feel the love tonight with no music behind me and it's very (laughs) embarrassing it's out there (laughs) wow i have some internet browsing to do tonight a different sort of internet browsing to do tonight (laughs) what are you implying both are going to get you going that's the thing kirk wow steamy not to one up you no i mean you absolutely did but no Anyway, I, I wouldn't 
I wouldn't have said that this would be a thing for me, but I could see now, like when she and I travel, mm-hmm. catching a show in a city. The energy is pretty it. cool, isn't it? It was very cool. And it, it, we do so much family and kid based activities that sometimes you, you lose touch with that young, like single professional side of you. And it was fun to go out mm-hmm. downtown Milwaukee and dress up and be bougie. Were you like slowly sort of stroking your chin stubble and making comments about the intricacies of the play? Were you doing well, any of it was, that? It was mask mandatory. Oh. So I, I couldn't stroke anything but my mask. Okay, that's fine. That's a strange line. But <laughs> <laughs> talking about the intricacies of the musical, of the performance, we mm-hmm. walked, we were in the orchestra section, middle on the aisle, so we were dead on. And we were also at the top of that. So at intermission, we were the first people out. So we got to hit the bathrooms, the restrooms right away. Bonus. So on our way back in, as we walk through the door, this guy's all all eloquently explaining to his female companion. Um, he said, yes. And they, you know, they're, they're creating the juxtaposition between the two. And then we were out of earshot. And I thought, whoa, this guy, he's seeing some things. That I wasn't picking up on. He's explaining <laughs> to this lady. Lisa decides, oh, I, I want to grab coffee. He was a mask. He was a mask stroker then for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. His little goatee was peeking out underneath and he was he was, he was twirling it. Uh, so she wanted it. coffee. It was cold in there. Lisa's always cold. Yep. So we go back out, get coffee. On the way back in now, 10 minutes later, he's talking to a different woman. And as we walk in, he hear, yeah, yeah. And, and did, did you catch the juxtaposition? And I thought, okay, you've just got one line. <laughs> you've got one word <laughs> you learned. And you probably Googled this prior to getting here. And you read someone's fancy pants review of it. And he's dropping this on any woman who will listen to him during this intermission. He's just laying down laying down groundwork, trying to find a date for after the show. It, it, it turned immediately from, this guy's impressive to, okay, you're a one-trick pony. Juxtaposition? Juxtaposition. Juxta? Juxtaposition. Oh, got it. Juxtaposition. Contrast. Um, I don't pretend to be smart. Uh, I just looked this up. Juxtaposition. It is five syllables. The fact of two things being seen or placed close together with contrasting effect. Yeah. So you play two things off of each other and and create a very like stark contrast to show how two things that could be similar are different. You, they'll do it between characters or between different colors they like to use and things to create mm-hmm. mood. But anyways, he was bloviating about this. And at first I was impressed. And then I realized, no, no, he's been cast in the same bait at every performance at Uline Hall for the last three <laughs> years trying to get someone to know. When I was 13 and I learned the word plethora, Ooh, yeah. that was a big one for 13. And I'd be like, man, there's a plethora of books here or there's a plethora. I just threw that word out there all the time. And everybody was very impressed with the word plethora when I was in middle school. So I understand he's just doing his thing, you know? When I was 33, I was hosting this podcast with this charming ginger fella. Mm-hmm. And he used the word modality rather than activity type or 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 something like that. And I started using that and people are like, oh yeah, you've been, I see you've been listening to your co-host. You know, when we interviewed uh, John Yatskow and he was talking about the dog loop, which he created, he referred to the bucket and the sandbag as implements. And it yes. sounded very purposeful. And now I've been using the word implement, like implement of your choice yes, in I like prescription that. and 
makes me feel better about myself. So I, I kind of feel for this guy, this juxtaposition guy. Um, wow, that drug on a little bit, but I'm, I'm happy we got uh, we got that all covered. <laughs> I'm a worldly man, Kirk. <laughs> Self, a self-described worldly man. Should I um should I introduce what we're talking about today? What do you think? I do want you to introduce it, but I wanna I wanna toot my own horn here. Oh, I would love I, you to. This is not just Bracken's first adult Broadway experience. Oh, we're not done yet. Got it. No, today I received an email from Spartan Race. Okay. Wishing me happy anniversary. Today is the ten year anniversary from the first Spartan Race I ever ran. Now I'm not. I'm not one to stand on ceremony for things, but this, I called Lisa into the room, gave her a big old hug and said, happy anniversary. Because this experience directly changed the trajectory of our lives. At the time, we were a young married couple, both teaching, living in Walworth County, and locked into our 30, 40 year path towards retirement. Mm-hmm. And that one race showed me that a, I've got the competitive juices still. And B, there's a place for me to compete. I don't have to be done with running because I wasn't running much at the time. I was just bro lifting and teaching and coaching. And here I am 10 years later with a different career, living in a different city, having run 86 Spartan races since then, not even counting all the other non-Spartan OCR, mountain races, ultra races, trail races, things I never would have done a bucket load of success, a bucket load of failure, but a different life, a different house, a different occupation and a different love for life. So it was a directly, like rarely can you look back on positive changes in your life and say this one thing changed the course of history for me, but that one thing did. Wow. 10 years ago today, a decade in this sport. Thank you. Happy anniversary, Bracken and Spartan Race. You two have been mildly happy together. We have been. We've had our yeah. ups and downs. You know what's interesting is right away, it shows you the number of races you run and it shows you trifectas and all that. And then it shows you what you took in each one. And I counted up and I was like, wow, I've made 56 podiums. That's awesome. And then I realized, wow, I finished outside the top three, which is always my goal, 30 times. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, it just kind of hit me and one page, 10 years of life showing I have had 56 successes and I've had 30 drastic failures. And I think that's really important to keep like to have a, that keepsake right there reminding me of 30 times I failed balanced out by 56 times I succeeded. Yeah. And that's, you know, each of those are debatable. There are probably some podiums that I had a failure race and probably some, I, I know of at least two or three, failure races in quotes where I really succeeded that day. But it's important to realize this has not been just linear progression. There have been a lot of setbacks, but that I'm extremely happy with where I am in life with you as my partner here because of that first race 10 years ago. Wow. We would not have this podcast. No, we would not. Um, I still am not sure uh, to this day if I wasn't at home over Christmas watching Robert Killian win the 2015 World Championships on NBC. Coincidentally, if I ever would even dip my toes in the water, I just happened to look at the TV at the right time on Christmas Eve while it was playing. So you never know. Yeah. 
think of our twisted path that led us to each other. Because we've been we've been ships passing in the night for two or three decades. I know. We grew up in the same state. We went to university in the same conference, albeit at slightly different times. Yeah. We had shared friends. I coached some people you were friends with. And here we are now, co-hosting a podcast. We, our business and love lives intertwined. <laughs> it's fantastic. Our love lives? Well, I mean, we've double dated. Yeah, I guess we have double dated, haven't we? I, I, it's not like we're swinging. I would. You would be my first. You would be my first choice, for sure. A nice, a nice easy transition. Slap a little rouge on you. Name that. I'm not one. saying I wouldn't make a pass at you. I just could never share, Lisa. Yeah, <laughs> too I possessive. I understand. It is funny how it all works, isn't it? We didn't plan yeah. on talking about this, but uh, yeah, very different trajectory for me as well. When I found Spartan Race, I was solely personal training, mm-hmm. and now I'm majority. Majorly endurance coaching. My shift went from 100% personal training to about two thirds endurance coaching, one third personal training, wild and podcasting. I told every, every one of my teammates had heard me say this far too many times in college that when I run my last collegiate race, I am done running. I, even at the time, I still didn't enjoy running. I just loved competing and I was going to go get swell and play beer league softball for the rest of my life. Everyone knew the moment I didn't even cool down after my final race in college. I said, I've earned it. I'm done hanging up the spikes. And so it's like, it takes random chance. Some people would say the hand of God. Some people would say the universe had other plans for you. Some people would say that's just dumb luck. But my buddy who stood up in my wedding got hit by a car when he was out for a run. Hmm terribly injured and part of it was a torn ACL and to I know I've said this story before but to get back into shape he signed up for a Spartan race in a year or something like that nine months after you know after a surgery and after a bit of rehab he needed a goal and he asked me if I'd do it with him and I was the one who guilted him into going for the run and so I said yeah of course and I didn't think he'd rehab and follow through on it and I had never heard of Spartan race and I thought it sounded dumb so I didn't sign up. And when I went to sign up, the only time slots left were the last heat of the day and the first heat of the day. And I don't want to be wasting my whole Saturday. So I signed up for the first wave. Turned out that was the elite wave. That was prize money. Hobie call was there, kicked my butt, embarrassed me. I had a great time, won a little bit of money, qualified for world championships. And 10 years later, like that's, that's freak chance almost, you know, again, you can look deeper into it and find meaning, but that, that was not my trajectory. And suddenly here we are you just randomly watching a show over Christmas. Yeah, it wasn't at my, it was my grandma's house. It was on TV in the background is what it was. And I just happened to ignore my family for the remainder of that hour and watch it because I couldn't help myself. But you know, there's people out there though. Like you're either like a, you're either somebody who like meets opportunities halfway and you kind of grab things by the balls and pursue them or you don't like, if it wasn't this, I guarantee it would have been some other serendipitous moment that would have led you down another path that you couldn't imagine your life being any other way. It's like when you're a liver of life and you're a grabber of balls, Bracken, you grab those balls and you go with it, right? Tombstone, Bracken Crocker, grabber of balls. <laughs> you, you, would have, you would have found some balls to grab onto no matter what. Yeah. I think I think that's the case. And you know what else? I'm still going to be getting swallowed and playing beer league softball when this is over, whenever that may be. That is yeah. still my intention so we could form a league or a team i mean as well 
It's yeah. And, and you're right. I would have found something, but I also mm-hmm. had my you life laid out in front of me and I saw what I was going to be doing and I was complacently content with that. But one of the craziest things about this whole experience is that I left purist running college track and field cross country training on the roads, hundred percent of the time or the track, like that's purist running. That's snobby. We're a runner. The rest of you triathletes and mud runners are, are, are people that couldn't cut it in my sport. I left that not enjoying running. I found Spartan. And as a result, I fell in love with running, sought knowledge, immersed myself in it. And now we have a running podcast. It took OCR, the kind of the black sheep of the endurance world to teach me to love running. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to have a lifelong relationship with running because of the oddball sport that saved me from purist running, which now makes me in love with purist running and the oddball sports. Very, very many layers to this, Kirk. So anyway, sure long story short, happy anniversary to myself and cheers to our, our relationship. You can't spring that on me like that without a heads up. I got the email quite literally when I went to click on your email. Oh, just before this. Yeah. Kirk sends out a link for the podcast each week. So I went to refresh my email to see if I had received it yet. And Spartan's email popped up. So mm-hmm. I clicked on it, called Lisa in, and then you t- sent yours over and then I joined. So th- there was no no preparation okay. for this. I, I, had, I have an athlete of mine, a client and an athlete of mine who had said something once um, recently, oh, semi-recently, and she said she felt like she was in love with running but running was not in love with her. Mm. You ever felt like that? Meaning like I so desperately want to be a runner or the best runner or uh, attain what the people I look up to have attained. And I am in love with running. And every time I go out and intend to do something or will or want my body to do something like running doesn't love me back. You ever felt that way? Your meniscuses and all that? During that whole injury time period, I wanted nothing more than to run. And I Mm. felt like my body was saying, you know, maybe we're just not meant to do this. Right. But I don't know. I've always felt like running wanted me to love them. And I was just using them as a booty call. Uh, I'll use you for races, but I don't want to be in a relationship with you. Yeah. And then then I finally decided, yeah, then I finally decided (laughs) to take the relationship seriously and running wanted to, but they also had to give me a wake up call. Like, this is how it felt all these years. And they ripped my meniscus in half. <laughs> Leave a love me... for running analogy to turn into booty grabbing. Yeah. And then, and then I made it through and they finally softened their heart. And I said, you know what? You're right. I shouldn't have put you through that. Let's do this the right way. And now here we are. And now we're yeah. working on building our relationship. Our foundation is, is solid, but, but tenuous. And we're building upon that every day. So that love is reciprocated uh, both ways right now. It is for me too. I believe so. Um, okay, now I'm introing what we're talking about, Bracken. <sighs> 19 minutes of intro. But I'm very happy for you in Spartan Race. Congratulations. I'm on five years, so I got a little ways to go. Can't have, can't have 10 without five. It's true. It's, it's one of the numbers uh, on the way. Um, can, is there any smooth segue here? Or should we just go right into it? I think we go right into it. Right. There's no smooth uh, segue. We just announce and we we put all of our our disclaimers out there immediately. We're at this point. All right. 
Um, well, this came up, I guess, I guess it was kind of my idea, but it really wasn't because you're, you're dealing with this with some of your athletes right now too. Um, I'm assuming so many, but, uh, and this is going to be a little bit of a one that we might have to dance around a little bit because that's how I prefer to approach this, but it also still needs to be talked about. And that is, um, losing weight in the off season or in your base building phase. Um, I have probably a half a dozen athletes who've been open with me uh, over the past few months about wanting to, or needing to lose weight, being a, a barrier to success as far as improving their performance. And my, um, my heavy recommendation is to completely disregard that uh, desire until you are done with your last race of the season. We don't have to worry about metrics necessarily, and we can do it in a smart and safe manner in which does not impact your training or racing. So we're kind of at that point in the year where if you're starting to look ahead to 2022 and you do believe truly that you have some unneeded weight to lose, now would be the best time in theory to do that. And Bracken, I mean, you and I have avoided the nutrition, specifically the weight loss topic, like the plague, Mm -hmm. but it's just been coming at me from all directions right now with athletes of mine. And I think it's time we talk about it because I think a lot of people are thinking that. And if you're going to trim up, now is the time. So that's kind of our topic for today. If we have anyone who's been with us from the beginning, since the beginning, or who has gone back and caught up on all of our guest interviews, There's a very definite thread between a lot of our high-performing guests and eating disorders. And if not eating disorders, inappropriate relationships with weight in their past, present, and unfortunately future for a lot of them. It's something that all of those issues started, almost all of them, started with either an external or internal conversation, which went something along the lines of, I think I or you would just be faster if we lost a little weight. And so that's, that is always our hesitancy in that so many careers and lives were negatively impacted by someone encouraging weight loss that we've tried to avoid it. But at the same time, this thing is going to happen with or without us. It's going to be discussed with or without us. And it almost feels like our responsibility to provide a good, balanced, rational conversation on the topic. People are going to learn somewhere how to do this or how not to do this. And it it almost feels compulsory for us at this point to not avoid it. It's part of the the self-created platform here is we have to have those tough conversations like we've talked about lately. Tough conversations provide room for growth. And so we, we have to discuss it. And our hope is that people will understand why we're talking about it. And that is that we have dozens of athletes who all say the same thing each year. I had a great year. I really like this, but I, it's come to like be too clear for me that I would be healthier and faster if I did not have some of my extra weight on my body. Yeah. And I, I would like to clarify that in any of these conversations, we're not going to use names or anything, of course, that would be silly, but In any of these conversations, it would never be us as coaches who would be like, hey, man, if you lost weight, you would be faster. That has never come out of my mouth one time. 
uh, proactively. It's never come out of your mouth. I trust proactively. This has always been a response to somebody coming to us and saying, hey, I really believe that I have 10 pounds to lose. And if I do that, it will positively impact my performance. So I just want to like make clear that like to, to pre- curse this entire conversation. It's never come out of my mouth first or Bracken's mouth first. This would only be in response to a request. And then once that request is to, or that suggestion or that idea is given to us, then it's kind of in our hands to be responsible with that and, and guide appropriately. So I just want to make that clear. Like we've never suggested somebody should. <laughs> and, and, even, and even in cases where I feel like people have been pushing for that suggestion and leading us to tell them that, I've never done it. So, and I know you haven't either. So I just want to like make sure that is clear that we've never encouraged it. But I do understand and agree oftentimes that some athletes would benefit from it. And if I believe it's smart and safe and applicable to that person, then we entertain the conversation. So I just want to make that yeah. clear. And this is such a difficult conversation because what what's the old phrase? Some of the worst acts are done with the best of intentions. Totally. You can have an athlete or a friend or a client who you work with and they say, I understand that I am over my body's healthiest weight, or this is not my best weight for performance. This is, you know, mm -hmm. the, I have the book right here on my desk, not planted here, Racing Weight by Matt Fitzgerald. Someone will say, I just don't believe I'm at my best racing weight. That is a healthy statement to make on the surface. And if we approach that with the best of intentions, it doesn't change the fact that we can be planting the seed for an eating disorder with the best of intentions, or they could come to us and say all the right things that, you know, I've looked at my diet. I've looked at my training. I've, I've realized I do not have an unhealthy relationship with food. I think I am eight to 10 pounds away from being a much different athlete and a healthier individual. And we'll say, wow, that's awesome. And they might not be telling us the truth. And we do our best to source out, you know, suss through that information and find out, are they being truthful or not? But the fact is that with the best of intentions, you can still do serious unintentional damage to people's psyche and mentality. And so it's a very difficult conversation. And so this is going to be the most holistic, logical, rational, gentle version of this that we hope that we can possibly put out. And we hope that people are not offended by anything in here because our intent is always to make people better humans first, runners second. Yeah. And because we refuse to identify weight as their leading cause with anything, I think it proves that we are willing to put human progress first before running. Because if this were a machine, and I've said this before, in just the pure mathematical scientific world, weight is always part of the formula. And if you, you know, I like to bring up cars, if you can lower the weight of a car, you increase the speed and you increase its fuel economy. Like it is not debatable. And so from that standpoint, we should be leading with weight. But because of the human component, we refuse to, because even if you can gain seconds in your mile, the cost, the potential cost as a human is almost never worth it. Almost never. Yeah. Um, what, what I would like to do is sort of start from the beginning here, mm -hmm. as in um, a little bit of what I introduced this, uh, touch on touch on a bit there about when to do this, when, when makes sense, just dig into that a little bit. And then how I think you should start, as in maybe even getting some body metrics to make sure like you're not um, dysmorphic in the sense where 
we actually have some tangible numbers to say, hey, you know what? Your body fat is a bit higher than it needs to be. And thus, I do believe you have weight to lose or you're actually pretty lean already. I feel like maybe we need to revisit this conversation, for example. So so the first thing to touch on with this is timing. Okay, timing is everything. And we'll get into the ethics and the approach and all of that. But like timing has to be first. I'm telling you right now, that if in the back of your head, you feel like you will perform better while losing, if you lost weight, the time is not to do it when you have big demanding workouts and you have big demanding races coming up. Because any sort of, basically, if you're creating a caloric deficit to, to lose body fat, which I assume is what we're targeting here, um, it's going to impact your training and thus it's going to impact your racing. So in an ideal world, we talk about base training, we talk about the off season, you look at your calendar, you look at your schedule, you find your last race of the year, and you don't worry even one iota about where your weight is at until that final race of the season is done. You eat the way you have, you live the way you have, you train the way you have, you don't change a damn thing because that can be a really bad spiral. So you get to and through your last race of the season, take your recovery if you have that planned, and then when we're base phase or off-season training and you don't have a you have a stretch of time in which your performance doesn't matter and base phase is the best time to do this because we're doing a lot more easy running anyways then we implement potentially some strategies we'll talk about but first and foremost do not do it with intent during the season I'm telling you that is a huge mistake and it's going to lead you to crash and burn and most likely feel like shit about yourself so that'd be my first step is look at your calendar and then the t- choose your timing of this wisely. That's what I want to start with. I agree that, uh, and a lot of times it's because people feel it's a pressing issue. Correct. I have X race coming up and I want Y performance and my weight is Z. And if I can lower Z down, that Y performance can shoot up. But that is akin to saying, I am not fast enough. I'm going to do a huge block of speed training. I'm going to do four or five speed workouts a week leading up to this race so I can get faster. Like that ship has already sailed. It's too late. It's too late to do it appropriately. So there's no sense cramming as an athlete ever. The only thing you can ever cram is skill work. Mm -hmm. And weight is not skill work. It is a deeply seated issue that permeates every aspect of your life. And it's not skill work. What would you... Would you agree or disagree with me when I say the only way you can focus on dropping weight in season is by cutting out excess calories while still keeping yourself at even or a surplus? And I'm talking the person who burns 2,500 calories a day and eats 3,000. You could you could potentially cut out a few hundred of those, still stay no deficit, but get rid of your extreme excess. And there are people like that out there. That would be my one maybe caveat is, okay, you can lose some weight in season, but you cannot go into a calorie deficit when it matters. I agree with that. Absolutely. But that's also just chiseling tiny little bits off um, almost unintentionally. It's like, let your training do the talking. You're still eating plenty and healthfully and not monitoring or counting anything really just being conscious of what you're eating. Yes, I think that there's a place for that. And if it happens slowly, then you may be able to perform okay while doing so. But like, what's going to get you? What's going to get you further? Uh, a two-ton truck with a full tank of gas, 
or a ton and a half truck with a quarter tank of gas. Like your big heavy truck with a full tank of gas is still going to outperform this lighter truck with a half a tank of gas. So like it, it really is very simple. Like if you think of it that way, and we are machines, I hate to tell you, but we kind of are. We run and operate the same way. I just wanted to make sure that we didn't plant an unintentional seed of I'm in trouble if my weight has gone down as I approach a race. Because it's very reasonable that weight will go down as you get to your most intense training block. But our point is you cannot put yourself in a caloric deficit. You must stay at worst even during big training blocks. Yeah, I agree with that. Because for example, in college, I'd walk around at 170. And by championship season, I'd be 167 every year. And that's just what it whittled me down. But I was not intending any of that to happen. And I always had great energy levels. So you you don't push the panic button if some weight drops at that time that we're talking about, but you cannot go caloric deficit. You just can't. Yeah. And Ryan Atkins talked about this recently. What do you, what do you say? He's talked to, he put a few weight posts out. One of them, he said after he did, uh, was it the rut or no, he did broken arrow. He did broken arrow. And he was he getting comments, after, I believe, from athletes, right? After the race, the pro athletes were talking. The, uh, the He kept hearing the comment. They couldn't believe how well he did for such a big guy. He was like, come on, I've tried this lighter. And he said, I have no energy. I'm so lethargic and I have no staying power when I'm lighter than this. And so that's the point we're talking about right there. You would look at a Ryan Atkins, let's say, and I will talk about his body because he's talked about it. He has way more muscle mass than your typical endurance athlete. And you would say, you know what? If you could chisel some of that down by championship season, your climbing is going to go through the roof. And he's tried it and his climbing sucked because not sucked, but for him, it, it went down the tubes because he had no energy because like you said, he was a lighter vehicle with no gas in the tank. Yeah. Well, this was a, you know, this is a point I wanted to talk about, um, as far as losing weight, but I think the one way to do it in season, which again, I don't want to make the in-season weight loss a point of emphasis of this conversation at all. So I want to move on after this. It should not be the goal. Correct. That should not be the goal. Performance is always the goal. And if you are dieting while trying to perform well, your performance will suffer and thus you are not achieving your goal. So that means like conscious weight loss uh, or aggressive weight loss, not recommended. But um, if you are going to do something like that during season, it's as simple as you know what, I have half a chocolate bar after dinner every night, or you know what, I like my trolley gummy worms and I eat a half a bag a day at some point. It's just picking one thing and just yanking it, doing everything else the same, the fringe, uh, alcohol. Bracken, I told you yesterday in an off mic conversation, I'm down seven pounds in four weeks. I went from 173 to 166 and all I did was cut out booze. That's incredible. Without with eating probably more than I was prior. Point being is if you have a thing that's glaring, like I have two beers a night to unwind, those fringe things that you know are empty calories, those are the first things where I'm like, you know what, if we're in season, we can tackle those like low hanging fruit, so to speak. Yes. Um, that is okay in my mind. But that's really the only thing that I would I would recommend at all in season is those those obvious indulgences. The dad tax. The dad tax? You familiar with that term? I didn't know the term. I knew the process. Matt Davis told me about the dad tax term. Okay. It's at the end of dinner each night. You finish your kids' scraps before you do the dishes because you hate to see the food you've made go to waste. 
And it happens all across this nation, Kirk. I can't tell you how many times. In fact, I just had a guy I was working with. We had the conversation about he was ready to lose some weight. I said, we're not going caloric deficit in season. We're going to up your your running volume. We're going to try to cut out your frivolous behavior. Wine from four nights a week down to two. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. He didn't lose any weight. And we were talking one day and all of a sudden I said, oh, you have kids, don't you? He said, yeah, I have three kids. I said, yeah, you're, you're, you're finishing their plates for, for them at night, aren't you? And he goes, oh, my goodness. I wasn't even counting that in my daily caloric intake because I didn't even <laughs> think about it. Because you're just there you're like, oh, I'll toss a couple chicken nuggets in my mouth. Put that plate away. Oh, there's some spaghetti left here. Finish that off. It's, it's called the dad tax. I've never heard of that, but it makes sense. Yeah. And I was doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it happens so regularly. We were talking about it around the fire camping the other weekend. So things like that. If you find a place where you're just like, you've got a, a leaky faucet somewhere basically and your water bill is going up and you can't figure it out and you realize, oh, the toilet's been running this whole time. Mm-hmm. It's those. You can't, you can't take out your necessities. But if you find a leaky toilet somewhere, you stop that drip and then that can be your, your quick way there. Yeah, I think I think we got our point across there. I, I don't know how much we need to spend on that further, but I'm just I'm glad we, you brought it up and that we talked about it because I think that's I, I don't know if I have much else to add to what I would condone in season. Do you have anything else before we move on to like the bulk of this thing? No, let's summarize it, though. Point number one, big point. Do not go caloric deficit when performance matters. With intent. With intent. Yeah. One A. If you have to lose weight during the season, cut out the frivolous activities. Yeah. Trim the fat off of uh, your eating, so to speak. Yeah. There's a pun in there. Yeah. Uh, tackle the low-hanging obvious fruit where you know you could do better, um, but nothing extreme. So let's talk about now, like, you know, we we may have some people have two, three, four, maybe even five months between races they really care about. And now we're talking like the bulk of this. I'm talking to those athletes. Like a lot of them would just want to, you know, if I was three to five pounds lighter, those little bit. And then we have some athletes who are like, I still need to lose 20 pounds. Like I know I do. The first thing I recommend for people before you embark on this, before I can even get on board and say, well, what is your body composition? I need to know where you are at. Meaning go into a local facility and get your body composition checked. Or if you belong to a gym, you can get a body composition analysis done. What I need to see and what you need to see so you can one track progress and two, let's make sure we're not doing any destructive behavior that is unnecessary is show me the numbers. Show me the numbers. I need to know your weight. I need to know your body fat percentage and your lean mass. And the only way to do that at very at least is to get a skin fold or a caliper measurement um, or go in and get something even more in depth, like a bod pod or hydrostatic weighing or something like that. So, which I'd obviously prefer. Yeah. Um, I can get within like a percent with the calipers. I do a seven site fold and a lot of trainers are, um, you know, crappy are at it. educated on that. Well, they're also crappy at it. Yes. But I believe I'm pretty close and some are, some good ones can get close, but anyways, you got to know your starting numbers. I, I do. I don't want to lead from lead from that first. I do want to say this: the skinfold caliper test is only as accurate as the test administrator. Where the pods, water submersion, anything that's that is technology based, is accurate. So, if you're going to do skinfold, like you said, there are people that can do it just fine. Make sure it's not just somebody's buddy who bought it at a rummage sale. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're getting bad data, and it'll be different every time they pinch. 
I don't want to get too far into a rabbit hole here, but like bioelectrical impedance as well would be one like you hold onto the handles of something and you hold your arms out straight and it runs a current through your body. Um, some of the scales that you have, you step on in your bare feet and it runs a current through your body and gives you body fat percentage. <clears throat> Unless you're talking a super technologically advanced multi-thousand dollar machine, those are absolute trash and do not trust them. I don't care if your gym sells you on it. Your gym's like, well, we have bioelectrical impedance. Hold onto these handles and step on the scale. Screw that. I've tested many of them and I can get a test and then I can go work out and come back after the workout and my body fat percentage can change six to 8%. And I don't even know if I'm at six to 8% to start with. So point being, I don't trust bioelectrical impedance as far as I can throw it. So if you have a cheap machine, I would seek some other sort of like service. Mm -hmm. That's just my preach there. As long as we're on a tangent, Kirk, please remind me to get back to your point. But I was just watching a YouTube video. There's a mistake number one. No, I'm just kidding. I learned a lot of things on YouTube. We all do. We talked about bad coaching in the past. And this episode can speak to that. But bad personal training is a real thing, too. When I watched a video where they were they were talking body transformations off consistency of workout plans, and they tested novice, intermediate, advanced people trying X number of thing per day for X number of days and see the body transformation. And this is a relatively famous personal trainer. And you know what this guy did? Hmm. One of his tests was throw them on the the, the scale and, and you show your BMI and your body fat percentage based off of it. And at the end of it, he got done. He said, and you know what? And you were 14% down to 12%. And I, I don't even believe that's right. You're much less than 12. And he moves on to the next person. And so he went into it and he knew it wasn't accurate, but he used it anyways. And I think that's what a lot of people mm -hmm. do. They know, but they use it because if it confirms what they're doing, they say yes. And if it doesn't confirm it, they say all oh, the machines wrong. Yeah. If there's going to be so much variance, don't even trust it in the first place. If you're going to do this, do it right. Well, that's not a tangent. You're definitely just honing in on my point. And I agree with that. So, um, so, so point being is let's make sure that we don't have some sort of body dysmorphia and, and maybe we all have a version of it, right? But let's make sure like the numbers don't lie typically. So you know what? You're a male and you're at 15% body fat. Well, that's good. Like that's okay. That's in a healthful range. But we also understand that essential body fat for a male can go down to five or 6% and you're still going to metabolically function okay and be healthy. So it's like, okay, well, there is some wiggle room here, let's say, where I do agree that if we want to be meticulous about this, there is room for you to lose body fat and still be completely metabolically healthy. So, and, and I could get myself in trouble here by, by saying these things for men and women, but I'm just going to do it to give people perspective. Okay. If you're a male. Can I pause you and say that this is one of the things you do in your daily job? Yeah. Every day. Yeah. I don't do this. So I'm going to be providing the psychological aspect to most <laughs> of these conversations. Kirk does this. And so he can provide the scientific aspect. Right. So, you know, essential body fat, typically I'm just going to throw out, I err on the high side. Essential body fat for men is minimum of 4% or above. And essential body fat for women is typically 12 to 13% or above. Those are low numbers. In fact, I don't think anybody should even hover around those. Those are the numbers in which women lose their periods at. Most people, if you're a woman and you're at 12 or 13%, you don't menstruate. Your adrenal and thyroid function may be suffering. Your hormonal imbalance is going to be prolific on a number of accounts, men's testosterone levels are going to start going, cortisol levels are going to get out of whack, um, all sorts of things. So, and you're going to feel like shit all the time because you're just going to be so run down and empty on a hormonal level. So body fat is essential to hormonal production. Without body fat, um, you can't produce essential 
bodily hormones. So no more, no less than 4% for men. And I think that's too low, no less than 12 or 13 for women. Typically in an ideal world, you know, you can look at me, I might be 6% body fat, right? I don't think anybody needs to be less than six or 8% body fat as a, as a, a man. And nobody needs to be less than 15 or 16% body fat as a woman. And ideally, I honestly think that if you're a male and you're anywhere in the eight range or so, you have nowhere to go from there. Eight or even 10% for a male is healthy, athletic, fit, lean, mean, ready to crush. And for women, it's 20 to 22% even. You're lean, mean, ready to crush. Some people think they need to have these ridiculously low numbers to perform, and you're absolutely incorrect. So first of all, I base things off of those things. If I think, okay, at bare minimum for me to feel good about how lean you are, a man needs to be at least six, 8% and a woman needs to be roughly at least above 18% is really what I throw to know that metabolically you're going to be okay. So first of all, I know those numbers and then I get them tested and I say, all right, where are you at? And I say, all right, you're right. You know what? We could lose up to 10% body fat without you sacrificing your health. So I like to start with the numbers. Does that all make sense? It absolutely does. Okay. And, and body dysmorphia is a real thing, Kirk. And I, I would say I have a very healthy relationship with food and body weight. But if I had an area of weakness, it would be that I trend towards body dysmorphia. Okay. Not in that I have an unhealthy relationship with how my body looks, but I don't think I can accurately see my body. Mm -hmm. There are many times, and I have mirrors all over my basement. Anyone who's ever worked out in my basement or seen a video of it knows that I really am a movement person. I like watching my form. I immediately do everything better if I can see it. As a result, I'm always watching. I'm always seeing my body when I'm training. And the way my body looks to me when I am working out or when I am walking by the mirror is never the way it photographs or shows up in videos. Now, part of that is just the nature of things photographic evidence um, never quite lines up with the way someone looks in normal life. But mm -hmm. we also look at, like, I'll look at a start line picture and it never correlates with what I believe my body looks like. Sometimes mm -hmm. I look way better standing there at the start line than I feel standing there. And other times I look way worse than I feel standing there. I'll think I am like a Greek God right now. And I see a picture. I'm like, wow, I am really soft in my midsection. Mm-hmm. And I thought my abs were popping. You know, it's like, I cannot accurately judge how my body looks. And I understand that about myself. And because of that, I can't use visual cues for, for determining what I have to do with my caloric intake or where I'm at with my performance. Because I understand mm -hmm. I have some form of body dysmorphia. It doesn't drive me to do bad things, which I count myself very lucky for. But yeah. body dysmorphia exists everywhere. And it's very, like you said, I really like that you make people get tested first because there will be people who come to you and say, I have 10, 15 pounds to lose. I'm just so soft right now. And you look at them and you're like, I would really caution you against that because you are mm -hmm. as lean as any person I know. And you clearly don't know what your body truly looks like. And I know I'm one of those people. I don't know what I look like. Mm -hmm. I would say that's more common than less. And I actually believe I fall in the same camp. I don't think... I mean, how many people pick the one perfect race photo in which everything is flexed and then perfectly filtered because the rest they feel like they look like absolute trash. And it's mm -hmm. pretty common. Um, 
I would say, gosh, I would say almost everybody has a version of it. Every, mm -hmm. not every, but most big bodybuilders who look to be the, you know, the supposed peak of fitness all, you know, microanalyze every little bit about themselves and, and fixate and things like that. So, um, I think it's normal and it's okay. It's okay. It's not like a fault of yours to have that. I think it just is what it is. But we have to be cognizant of it. Yeah. Because we can't use our image of ourselves to judge what the next step needs to be. We have to rely on an outside source. Yeah. I agree with that. And that's why I just like I just like the objectivity of numbers. So Yes. So first thing is determine and and you know, a lot of times you can look at yourself, you'd be like, you know, I I know I was 10 pounds lighter 5 years ago. And I know how I looked and felt and I'm 10 pounds heavier now. And I know like sometimes you just know and I trust that. But I just think for especially if you're going to get guidance on this, just like the numbers are very, very important. So let's say you get tested um, and it's very easy to do. Look up body fat testing near me and you're going to find a. if you live in a major city you're gonna find a bunch of places that pop up or just go ask the person at your local gym, uh, somebody at your local gym, and you'll get directed in the right place. But um, mm -hmm. anyways, so let's say we determine, OK. You know, you're a male and you're at 15% body fat. Is that bad by uh, health standards? No, not really. However, is it um, is it indicative that, yes, maybe there's some fat to lose and you'd maybe perform better? Yes. So then we've determined, okay, we actually have some that we could lose. Even if we have body dysmorphia or not, we know like, yes, I would probably perform better if I lost weight and I actually have the weight to lose, right? Then we have to look at the next step. And I do also want to touch on the side of the coin where, Let's say that number comes back and it's like, hey, man, you're at 8% body fat. I don't really suggest a, a strong effort to lose. And then we have to talk about muscle mass and intentionally getting smaller and changing our training, which I want to touch on slightly yeah. because there is room there as well. Um, but anyways, do you? I'll let you kind of, I mean, I'm happy to, to drive this train, but uh, what are your initial thoughts? Let's say, and, I, and I'll, I'll springboard off of these without a problem, but Okay, we know we've determined that we need to lose, not need, that we could benefit performance-wise from losing body fat. Where would you start with that, Bracken? Well, I am not someone who ever wants to get to the point where we even have to start the calorie game because it is not my profession, and so I don't play that game with athletes. I recommend them to go find a professional. And I think that that's always the point that is shared. Counting calories does not say you will have an eating disorder, and it does not say you will not have an eating disorder. But every person who's ever got an eating disorder counted calories, mm -hmm. you know? And so it's, it, it is not necessarily causation. It's more correlation, but it's so pervasive there. And so because of that, like starting counting calories does not guarantee you're going to develop an eating disorder. No. But- Everyone who went down the eating disorder path started with calorie counting. Mo I would say the vast majority. Yeah. And so that's why I, I hesitate. I try everything possible to avoid getting to that point. Even though people like yourself, weight loss professionals can handle it well, I try to stop it. I try to get anything accomplished without that. So I, I all I do, Kirk, I source out the low hanging fruit and I start there. Mm-hmm. Let's say that you have your 10 pound loss. Mm -hmm. Why does it not stick with most people? Why does the diet not stick? Why does the, the endorphin rush that gets you there, the excitement that drives that train, why does it not stick? Why does, what, what's the percentage now? 
it's a super high percentage of people that after they lose weight on their diet, gain it all back and then some within X number of months. You have the numbers, I don't. But the point is, why doesn't it stick? And it's because the habits weren't changed. A program was slapped on, but we didn't address the low-hanging fruit, which were the built-up habits. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about when you look at someone who had a breakthrough running performance, you don't look at what they did the last six weeks. You look at what they did the last six years. And so that's where I start as a holistic endurance coach, not as a nutritionist, which I am not, not as a dietitian because I am not, not as a weight loss specialist because I'm not. I don't have the right to address weight loss. I have the right to address what have you done over the past six to 10 years to build up the habits to the point where you have excess weight to lose and there are low hanging fruits. So that's where I start right there. What are the habits that have led to this point that we can change without changing your relationship negatively with food? Well, yeah, the the starting point is the same in which would be what I would consider like the in-season starting point, which is picking out. Mm -hmm. We we all know probably where our, where our dietary downfalls are. Um, For me, it was alcohol and a little bit of chocolate after dinner, for example. And that added up to many, many extra hundreds of calories a day. And I lost, I lost a bunch of weight recently without even trying. Right. So, and we've had this conversation once before I know on the podcast at some point, but it's time we just readdress it. So I agree with you. Step one is address the low hanging fruit. You can probably pick two or three habits that you have that are trash. Your sugary mocha from Starbucks that you can't get, you can't live without, but you could. That you mm-hmm. could find something that would you could substitute that with that would be significantly less detrimental to your caloric intake. And the thing about the dad tax or the glass of wine, how many nights a week or the desserts or uh, really dense snacking or things like that. So I agree with that. Yeah. Do you have any other examples that pop up just so people can maybe ring the, you know, the, turn the light bulb on for themselves? Less examples and more of a strategy. Whenever I have an athlete who thinks he's training more than he is or she. I say, all right, the next two weeks, you have to write down every single activity you do throughout the day, no matter how mundane you, if you think it, it moves the needle for you as fitness wise, you have to Mm -hmm. write it down. And then we get to the end of it. We look back and we realize you thought you were training 12 hours a week and you had six, right? It felt like 12 because you've done 12 and you're used to 12, but really it's whittled down to six and we see black and white. Here are the big issues underlined and circle what's holding back. And now we do that. You do the same Mm -hmm. thing with food. I'm a big proponent of food journaling. I don't want it to become obsessive, but take a week or two and write down everything that enters your mouth throughout a day. And you're going to then go back through. And now you just circle and highlight the frivolous pieces, the pieces that are done for pleasure or out of habit that don't provide an athletic or healthful component to your life. And oftentimes in our country, in this day and age, it happens during screen time. Screen time. I'm such a dad (laughs) screen time, but it's the point. Like when you sit down to watch football, what is that synonymous with beer drinking and pizza eating a drink and a snack? And when you sit down to watch the bachelorette, what is that synonymous with wine and chocolate, buddy, a drink and a snack, like a drink and a snack is the, is the current culture's way, the Western way of watching television. And so that's, that's one of the biggest, I think, that I found with my athletes is outside of dad tax and outside of, you know, snacking at, at the office, there's that bowl that you grab out of there's workroom that you grab out of when you don't need it. It's just habit. You're passing time. You grab, you snag a quarter donut early in the day and a quarter donut later in the day, and then a full donut at lunch. And you know, the, those little pieces, but screen time snacking turns out to be one of the highest culprits. So identifying mm-hmm. those and getting rid of them, that's hundreds of calories 
that just add up there and you don't have to even touch your diet or your mindset yet. You just have to go through, how long do you think it takes? Two weeks, 20 days maybe to stop feeling like you have the urge, the compulsion to reach towards that thing that you don't need. 14 to 21 days I find usually is enough for people. And you haven't yet even scratched the surface of diet, mindset, Mm -hmm. calorie counting. You just got rid of the frivolous work. Yeah. Anytime um, I have any of my athletes or clients log their nutrition, it will be I have minimum of three days. Everything that you eat and drink, anything that goes in your mouth other than water. And yeah, I do care about water, but for the sake of like monitoring, we can leave it out. Um, and every time they send it over, there's always a little paragraph like, Ugh, you know, this was atypical, I promise. And I had this event and this and that. And they look at it and they're like, oh my God, I grabbed a handful of chips here. I had some peanut butter M&Ms after dinner. Somebody brought scotch roos to work. And I did all that in one day on top of eating. And then I washed it down with two glasses of wine at night. And you see it on paper and you're like, oh, I, mm-hmm. I think I'm doing good. And maybe your meals are good. Maybe you're one of those people who get up and you eat balanced every three for three meals a day. But it's that fringe eating that really gets a lot of people. So writing down is super powerful. Um, I suggest like you don't even need to use a damn app. I tell people to take a piece of notebook paper, fold it up, put it in their pocket with a pen. And anytime their hand touches food and it goes in their mouth, they just scribble it on the paper real quick. Mm-hmm. It can be as simple as that. I don't care about quantity necessarily. And then you're going to zero in on the stuff that you know you don't need to be doing. So like, I agree with starting there. Absolutely. And then what I do, and and like, here's the thing is with this conversation, I want you to feel like you have some takeaways. So I'm going to give you some to, to maybe my detriment being like, you shouldn't have suggested that Kirk, or that could cause a problem in the future. I'm doing this with the best of like understanding of like what my suggestions could potentially lead to without like uh, offering up something that I believe could be harmful psychologically. So like, I'm trying to dance that line because we can sit here and talk theory or we can talk fluff. Like don't drink your wine at night. Okay. Great advice. But like some people are going to want and need more than that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. But I think starting there is very important. And then I also think, you know, as much as the scale shouldn't matter, um, in this case, if you, if we've already, remember this is, this whole conversation is precursed with the fact we've already determined that yes, you have body fat to lose in a safe realm. Okay. So just like keep remembering that. Then I suggest that you monitor once a week, two, three days, isn't enough to monitor progress. And most people end up frustrated. They weigh themselves every morning when they wake up. Oh my God, it went up a 10th of a pound. Well, you had a salty dinner. It's probably water retention once a week at most you recheck in. Now, I understand you can't probably afford or take the time to do a body composition analysis every week because that's kind of ridiculous. I get it. So the scale we do need to rely on in some capacity. If you're really diligent about this, once a week, same time, same day, same place, after the bathroom, butt-ass naked or in your little skivvies, and have an objective measure so you understand what is doing what. So you start with the fringe stuff and the low-hanging fruit like Bracken talked about. And you do that for a week, one week, give me seven days. And then you step on the scale again, or you get another composition test. And you say, huh, pound and a half. Hell yes. Continue doing what you're doing. And let's not add anything else to the mix because it's working. The more shit you throw at the wall, the less you have to throw at the wall later for another option. Then you dead end yourself. People go all in and they, they literally put all their chips on the table on day one. And there's no other cards or money to be better played. So 
you want to start with the minimal investment and see if your body responds. And so that's step one. It's like starting out too fast in a race. If you get out too hard, all you can possibly do is get pulled away from and slow down and feel crappy. You have to have some moves waiting. We always say you want decisions. You want options available to you in the second half of the race. It is no different here. If you pull out all the stops week one, all you can do is lose momentum. Or it just becomes stale and now you have to conjure up reasons to keep trying. Start with the low-hanging fruit and then start with the simple things like Kirk's talking about because stagnation, like we've been talking about, is real and you want to have a move waiting for when that happens. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, you want to have a match to burn, so to speak. And and I keep coming back to writing things down, but it's it's important. There's, a, I really like the show Archer. Kirk, I don't know if you ever watched Archer. No. Okay. Sounds terrible. It's good. Just kidding. I'm into archery, so I don't know. I said it's, it has nothing no. to do with archery. Sounds awesome. Anyway, the, the, the main character is a huge sociopath, and he, he did, does something wrong, and then he blames someone else. And then he said, but sir, you, you told me. And he said, and what am I? And he said, not to be trusted. He said, exactly. I'm not to be trusted. <laughs> and I feel like that's us. We are not to be trusted with our memory, with our recollection of what we've done and how we did it. Mm-hmm. We are so quick to convince ourselves we did more work than we thought we did, or we didn't take in quite as many stacks as we thought we did. And so until you change your habits and cement them as these are your new habits, things have to be written down. And writing down can turn into a compulsion, but we can't not give good advice because you could twist it the wrong way. You've got to start by cementing your habits on paper so that you can be trusted. Because otherwise you will not be trusted. Yeah, You're going to slip on something or you're going to throw too much into it at first. You have to be accurate and diligent with the recording early so that you can be trusted later. And I often um, don't recommend people use the apps like MyFitnessPal or Calorie Track or any of that. Yes, they are convenient. You can plug things in. It shows you your macros, but it also is going to give you a total number at the end of the day. And people are going to potentially have a tough relationship with that number. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to focus on that right away. I am. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you some numbers to focus on, but it's not calories. So just for what it's worth. Um, I'm so on board with that. Yeah. Because what do we as human, again, we cannot be trusted. We are not to be trusted. What do people do with step counters? Well, they get obsessed. And if they don't have their 10,000, they march around their living room at the end of the day, or they quick take their hand and they fling it up and down 150 times. Oh, there it beeped. I'm good. Totally. Are you good? Mm -hmm. Was that 10,000 worth the quality 10,000? No, it wasn't. I can't tell you how many people I personally know and have personally witnessed flinging their hand up and down to hit their last 150 steps as if your day changes one way or the other. But what does change is your mindset. Now you're convinced you're doing it the right way. Oh, my number says, and so I don't look at anything else. We're not to be trusted, Kirk. I agree with you. I totally agree with you. So yeah, that number, I, I, I like, I mean, apps are simple. They keep historical data. That's great. But as soon as you have a number, we put more weight on that number than it maybe deserves. That's an ironic statement you made there. Yeah, we put more emphasis on that number than it really <laughs> deserves. And listen, most of you out there, have a, you can see that number and have no problem. But again, we are trying to make sure we aren't 
throwing, we're just moving forward without throwing caution to the wind, right? And I understand that seeing that works for a lot of people. And if you talk to like, we had a nutrition with Rich Ryan episode, who we asked to be on the podcast today, and apparently he's getting married this weekend. So he can't <laughs> join the conversation. Lame excuse, Rich. And, and he is a proponent of calorie tracking mm-hmm. when done correctly. And I understand with his very thought out methodology, the how and the why, the output versus the input and all of that. But I'm saying if we don't have those tools at our disposal and you're sitting there at home or on your run right now listening to this and you want to be able to walk in your door from your run and start, like where do you start without having to worry about some of the other stuff? So, um, okay, so you're on board with that. So logging, I agree. Um, Not associating a caloric number with that, at least not right away. Make sure you're having a healthy relationship with what you're doing. Um, Weigh yourself once a week. Yes, I know that there's like a negative stigma with stepping on the scale, but for the sake of progress, we need to understand what's happening to our body. What is X causing to happen in our body? Correct. We need to know. Otherwise, we're just the blind leading the blind. So one, I mean, I hate to say it, but it, it, it needs to be done. You need to have a progress update. So, well, we, we require our athletes to, to, to track everything else. To time trial. Isn't that a check-in? Yeah. Pace, duration, heart rate, how you felt, all those things. It's disingenuous to avoid doing something else because there's a stigma with it. Correct. Approaching it and removing the stigma is the way to get past that. A scale, if you can approach a scale no different than a stopwatch, you have won. And if you haven't won, you're winning the battle. Metrics are metrics. Data is data. And when we can remove the emotion from it, that's when they become powerful. Because a lot of times people will step on a scale and get depressed if they don't see the number they want, or they'll say, forget, it's not even worth it. I'm just going to go and drown some sorrows, or I'm going to scrap my plan for a week, and then I'll rebound and do it better. But those same people wouldn't approach a time trial that way. Right. They wouldn't run a 5K time trial, have a crappy time, and be like, oh, forget it. I'm just going to go do nothing but 5K work every single day for the next two weeks. Or I'm not going to run a step for two weeks because that'll make me feel better. They understand if they don't run a step for two weeks their 5k is going to get worse. They also understand that, you know, the, the 5k version of starving yourself would be, I'm just going to go all in on this. I'm running you know, five by mile at 5k pace every single day for the next two weeks. And then I'm going to hit the, they understand that that won't work either. It will Mm -hmm. destroy their bodies, but it's because there's not an emotional tie to that stopwatch the same way there is with the, the weight scale, but you have to still approach the scale. We can't avoid it because then you don't know. And we demand metrics for everything. And so even if you don't like hearing it, we have to demand a metric for weight. Yes. I understand some of you don't want to step on the scale. You can tell by how your clothes fit. You can tell by how you feel. And if that, if you're comfortable with that, that's great. Then, then by all means, go ahead and do that. I understand if there's going to be some people out there who are uncomfortable with it. I get it. But if we're just trying to look at this like in a healthful manner, knowing where we are currently at and all of that, I just think it's, it's important. So, so now let's say step one, you, you nip the low hanging fruit and you're at the end of your, I say, give everything two weeks to start. So let's say you do that in week one, you're like pretty much the same. And you're like, ah, shit, nothing's changed. Please give it another week because our bodies don't always work like that. They don't respond at the snap of a finger. Sometimes it takes time to adjust. And weight loss isn't linear, it's up and down, but as long as it's trajecting the right way, we're doing something right. And that means trajecting the right way over months. So give it another week. If we're still at the end of week two, yes, be patient here. And you're like, "Ah, I cut out the chocolate and I cut out my glass of wine four nights a week and the scales only budged a half a pound. It's not the progress I need. Then what do you do? 
Well, from there, again, and, and I'm also going to say that I have some athletes who I know have n- no issue with their body image or f- relationship with food. And I can be more aggressive off the start with them. And some of them listening know I have been. And I'm going to tell you those suggestions here coming up. But again, I don't know you listening very personally. And so I want to make sure we do this right. And so from the uh, cutting the low-hanging fruit, then you go immediately to portion control. So in that, now you've cut the low-hanging fruit, and now you take a look at your meals and say, all right, instead of going back for a second scoop every time, or my plate is so heaping full every time at lunch and dinner, I'm just going to cut those all by like a quarter. I'm just going to reduce everything just a hair. So I'm still eating everything I normally would eat. I'm not restricting in any other capacity. I'm going portion control. So phase one, low-hanging fruit. Phase two, if you're not happy with your progress, portion control. So then we go to that. So that would be my second line of defense without ever really getting too specific yet. How do you feel about that, Bragan? I like it because it follows the same logic as fitness does. If you tried a new training plan and you got better, you got better, and then you didn't for a couple of weeks, you wouldn't say, well, I have to start doing triple workouts per week. You would say, well, I didn't perform well in that time trial but I've been feeling better on my easy runs and my recovery runs are getting a little better. I just need to see the process through and I'm going to start tweaking my quality day and maybe lengthening my long run a little bit. You don't throw it all out and start doing crazy stuff. But how many times have we heard, even in the own interviews that we've had, where someone's like, I'm just no longer going to eat until 6 PM each day, or I'm not eating afternoon. I just cut out two meals a day. But that, that, that's an irrational response, but that's a logical response when you're in the fire and you can't see anything going on around you. Yeah. But so, yes, we don't remove meals. We don't start throwing five interval workouts a week at it. You just slightly reduce down and you start tweaking portion control. That makes good logical sense. And it ensures that you're not emotionally reacting. Correct. Because small emotional reactions early on or emotion driven decisions early on lead to that becoming your decision making process. And you don't want to be a reactionary eater. You don't want to be an emotionally driven eater. You want to be a feeling driven eater. Correct. And this ensures that. So I like that next step. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So, uh, we get to this point now we've reduced portion control and let's hopefully at this point, some of you are going to be like seeing progress and you'll be like, this is great. And mind you, we are training. We're still putting in a good amount of volume. You know, that's all up because we're now training for next season and we're, and we're you know, logging miles or time on feet or any of that. So this is in the assumption that we are still training. Um, so hopefully at this point, some of this has moved the needle for you. And it may move the needle for you for a long time, for months. Or it may move the needle for you a lot in the beginning and then really stagnate. But eventually you're going to come to a point where things stop moving. That is the point in which you mandatorily need to go back in and get body fat tested. You're like, I've been the same weight for two weeks. I've progressed for six, but I'm still not happy yet. Go back and get some numbers. Make sure you're still good to go and be like, yeah, you know, there's still some room there for me to improve because you're going to get to that point. And not everybody's going to respond right away to the things we're suggesting. Some people will, but not everybody. I have a few clients who are stubborn. Their bodies are stubborn SOBs and it takes a little more. And some people are metabolically just predisposed to that. So um, so those are the first two that we talk about without like giving you anything super, super finite. And that means we're not measuring, we're not counting calories in both of those phases. We're just eyeballing where 
you know, just living and we're still eating what we've been eating and cutting out the trimming off the fat of the, the stuff that we don't know we don't need. You following so far? Yeah. And you haven't put you haven't put the term speed or quick or rap. Like you haven't said any any speed based terminology here. Mm-hmm. Nothing that you've said is we're trying to get this off quickly. No, because that's going to be super counterproductive. Yeah, in the long run. Yeah, in in anything, whether it's weight loss, building a house, building your fitness, the faster something is built, the less it will last for. Totally. Like anything that's shortcut, even fitness wise, can you cram in a bunch of high intensity speed work and and get a quick PR? Yeah, but your your season's not going to last very long. It's the same thing mm-hmm. with this. The faster you see your initial results the longer it's going to take to get your long-term results and the shorter it's going to take before you regress or lose motivation. So at no point are we putting a accelerated timeline on this. There is no pressure, which is again, why Kirk says you must wait until the off season because you've got these months ahead of you to start small, build up and not rush the process because the process in life is everything. Yeah. And I would like to reiterate too, like there are 3,500 calories in a single pound of fat, which means you need to create a 3,500 calorie deficit to lose one measly pound, which is a ton of a deficit. So people sit there and be like, I only lost a pound this week. I'm like, you only lost a pound this week? Are you fucking kidding me? That's fantastic. A 3,500 calorie deficit in a week? You lost a pound? That's a miracle almost. Yeah. Like realistic expectations for an endurance athlete, half a pound, one and a half a week. Like we're not talking like big chunks here that if you're going to do something to sustain. So like you hear these stories, I lost five pounds a week for X amount of days. Yeah. Well, you might've been 500 pounds to start with, first of all, and it was there to come off. And second of all, we're not typically, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't have that kind of weight to lose them. I'm as a fair assumption, but maybe you do, but nonetheless, like it, it doesn't need to be as monumentous as you think in a week-to-week basis. Progress is progress. Even if it's a quarter of a pound, it's yeah. progress. And this is not a sedentary lifestyle podcast. This is a running podcast, which means you can't add in walking to your lifestyle and lose 10 pounds in a month. Correct. Exactly. You can't add in 20 miles of running and suddenly you're burning exponentially more calories. You're already exercising. Could you exercise more for some people? Sure, but like the that the noob gains are what obese clients experience. Totally. You add anything to the equation and your body's burning a fire right now. Most of these listeners are already burning. They're already exercising. They're used to that. Noob gains are gone. Yep. And so you have to have a realistic time frame in your mind. I mean, seriously, a pound a week, 500 calories in a day. You want to be depressed? Hop on your your treadmill and see how long you have to run before you hit 500 calories burned (laughs) or on an elliptical. Suddenly you realize a pound in a week, 3,500 calories is a serious accomplishment. And and yes, we're, this is totally directed at endurance athletes who are training. If you're somebody who's significantly overweight and your life is truly in danger, I'm going to be way more aggressive with you. And we're going to talk very specific potentially, but this is not our audience. So no. um, from here now, this is where I'm going to just like get a little muddy and it's okay. And you can take it for what it is, but this is some people are going to be stuck or they're going to be like, I've already done all that. And I'm still like, yeah, it helped. I lost five pounds, but there's like five more in there. And I know there is, and I believe you. You know, and if you've done the measurements, remember coming back and 
understanding where we're at from there is where it gets a little sticky, but I have two things that I'm very comfortable with suggesting. Okay. Um, one is intermittent fasting or feeding windows. You change nothing about what you're choosing to eat, your ratio of foods, all of that. You've already trimmed the low hanging fruit. You've watched your portions. Well, have we created a feeding window or an intermittent fasting window? It's not great metabolically or hormonally for women as much as men tend to do better on it than women as far as like hormonal, uh, I don't know, like changes would go, but a lot of women do well on it as well. But anyways, Lisa does intermittent this. fasting. And she's she been okay. very successful off this. Yes. Her choice was less of a choice and more of her body doesn't want food in the morning and she works out in the morning. So it creates a natural eating window, but her body coming back from three babies has been very much positively affected by intermittent fasting. Sure. But it also underlies the fact that these things all come down to personal experience. It will not work for some women and it will work for some women. And it's very much, if you follow these things sequentially, you find it out. And that's why like that hop on the scale once a week is important, Kirk. Because mm -hmm. if you try intermittent fasting and you're not weighing yourself and you're feeling like crap, but you think, am I supposed to? Like you're missing out on some data, but you have to be cognizant of the fact that some of these things don't work. But if you've been sequential, like you've laid out, you know, which piece was not right for you. And that's the one you remove and then you revamp with something else. Yeah, exactly. And and I do well with intermittent fasting as well. I typically feel pretty good on it. And all that intermittent fasting or feeding window is basically the principle is you you only eat for a certain amount of time throughout the day. Most people typically will not eat a breakfast in the morning. They'll typically uh, look at like eight hours of the day in which you are eating, which implies 16 hours of the day you are not. A typical protocol would be like 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. or noon to 8 p.m. where you might get up, have your cup of coffee, go hit your morning workout, even on an empty stomach. If you get into that routine, a lot of people can go out and bang out stellar workouts and they might burn for two, three hours after a workout without food. And some people's bodies respond really well to that. Then they go and they eat normally throughout the rest of the day. You got to be careful without overeating that first meal because it can happen. Um and, and then you have to, yeah, just off that, be careful not overeating. Josiah Middog posted one of the best nutrition posts I've seen Okay, in terms of, for me, it really hit me. He said, do not confuse the intensity of your hunger with the amount of food you need to consume. I like that. The intensity of your hunger means how soon you have to eat, not how much you have to eat. And that just like went, I love that. I love that. And he's, he's a, he's a great coach. He's a great endurance athlete. He's got kids. Like he has a holistic approach. It seems to things. And I want him on the podcast to talk all these things. But if you come off a block of, I missed a meal, I had a workout. You don't eat two meals right away. You eat right away. Yeah. And then you let your body tell you afterwards because you can't be trusted. You have to just eat normally. So that that concept of it tells you how quickly you need to eat. Intense hunger does, not how much you need to consume. Well, speaking of that, you're going to have an intense hunger in the beginning if you haven't done this. You might get up and roll out of bed and hit your run and then go to work and it's 930 in the morning. And you're like, oh my God, there's no way. Your body does actually adjust to this. Um, and again, this is under the 
I'm advising that you would eat normally still in that eight hours, which means you could even eat three meals in that eight hour. You could eat at noon, four and eight. It's not saying even skipping meals. It's just saying sometimes the GI system responds really well to having a break. And sometimes people just, you know, you might not eat for two hours after your morning workout or three, but that is, you are just crushing fat in your body because your body's got nothing else to pull from. And it works for some people. So I'm not putting this above my next suggestion either. It's it, they're equals in my eyes. So I don't know if you want to talk more about intermittent fasting or. No, I just wanted to get that Josiah quote in there because it was so good for me and it, it was applicable to what you were saying, which is when you do eat, don't go crazy on that first meal. And then I interrupted you. Yeah. Which is easy to do because um, you're going to be hungry. There's an adjustment, but you got to give anything time. Um, and I feel comfortable suggesting that again, based on the fact that one, some of these other things have been done or you've done them in the past and know what results they yield. And you're looking to be a little more aggressive. Um, and then two, under the assumption or the hope that you're eating balanced and normally within your feeding window of eight hours. Um, this can be very, sometimes you can eat the same damn amount of calories, even in that eight hour window as you'd eat in a normal day. And your body just responds to that. It just needed more of a break between, you know, between eating and sometimes your body just does well and it'd be no caloric difference. Um, I've seen that as often as I've, you know, seen it not. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's it. And then the other thing that I suggest, and I have a couple athletes on this right now, and this is the only thing I suggest counting. And this is what I call a carb monitoring program. You're not counting calories. I want you to eat as much fat and protein and all that, but we just look at our carb intake throughout the day. Meaning I want you to get enough carbs to fuel your system and your body, but we're just throttling the gas back a little bit on how much of that high octane fuel we're putting in it. And sometimes when you create just a slight carb deficit, even again, if you're eating the same amount of calories throughout the day, as you would have if you were eating all the carbs in the world, we're just, we run on a carb dominant fuel system. So if you take just a little bit away, sometimes your body will start dipping into its fat stores for fuel and it can be super beneficial. I'm not talking about keto. I'm not talking about Atkins diet. I'm not talking about low carb. I'm talking about carb monitoring. It's very different. As an endurance athlete in full training, you should be getting 400 grams of carbs a day minimum if you're in high training. I'm talking about, you know what? Why don't we try three or two at minimum and say, I'm going to go 200 grams of carbs a day and see how I feel and how my body responds. That's still 800 calories worth of carbs a day, which is plenty to fuel your life if you're going 200 grams a day. So at looking at that, I know you want to say something, but looking at carbs, and I don't even know if I want to give you a number necessarily, but choosing something and sticking with it and still eating as much of all the other stuff you want, I've seen that be very, very effective for a lot of people. Um, it can lead to some sluggish days. That's okay. That's normal. Part of weight loss actually is feeling a little tired sometimes because there is a caloric deficit. That's not atypical, but I place intermittent fasting or creating a feeding window or carb monitoring. There's also something called carb cycling, which is a little even more involved. It revolves around your hard workouts and your easy ones and you change your levels day to day based on what you're doing. It's a little more complicated. Message me if you want to talk details, but those two I put on the same playing field as the next step. <laughs> and that's where we get a little, that's where we get a little sticky. Like I know I'm making suggestions and now we're make, putting numbers on there, but we're not watching calories yet.
and we're still eating healthfully, we're watching one thing and that is carb intake. And it's not Atkins and it's not keto and it's not that. It's still a full carb diet, a carb dominant energy system, just dialing it back. It's like, well, the important piece here, Kirk, is that the disclaimer, right? This is not what you lead with unless you are working with someone who is, you know, in a place of obesity where their life is in danger. This is what, step five you've talked about? Four, technically-ish. Yeah. So so this is this is a progression that got you to this point. And most likely, if you are at this point, you are touching base with someone in the industry in some capacity that's going to be your your helping hand through this. This isn't necessarily a task to go alone. Right. You can raise volume alone, read a few books, but this requires, again, we're not to be trusted. This requires someone who is acting in a supervisory capacity, in my opinion. When we get to this point, I am no longer advising my athletes because this is not my comfort zone. This is where I send them to you. This is where I send mm-hmm. them to Rich Ryan. This is where I send them to Dr. Anna. This is where I say, you need to find someone who can be your Sherpa through this because it cannot be me, but it also cannot be you. It has to be someone with the knowledge and the perspective to guide you correctly. Yeah. And all this, you know, the, you know, all this goes with the, the steadfast rule of making sure we're monitoring every week still and making sure that I say at minimum every six weeks of going in and getting a body fat composite or body composition analysis. If you want to use the scale in between, that's fine. And again, you don't have to use the scale. I understand some people have a real negative um, feeling about that. And I get that. Um, But I know some of you want numbers and I just, I'm comfortable giving them to you Mm -hmm. in the sense where um, carb monitoring can be very effective. Again, I didn't say low carb. There's never been a low carb connotation here. Carb monitoring simply just means just turning the dial a little. So, and again, if you want specifics, I will give them to you. You know, you can reach out, but that, a, a place to start is just lowering that intake. And like I said, a typical endurance athlete should be having roughly 400 grams a day, at least if you're really putting out, as I call it, in your training. And if you lower that back, you know, I'm comfortable with 200 grams a day, um, as long as you're watching the scale and you're feeling okay. But um, and then I think I'm going to save it like to know your situation. If you want to talk carb cycling or combining carb monitoring with intermittent fasting, there's all sorts of things you can do here. Um, I think I'm going to just, I'm going to hold my breath on that one because I don't want to get too far into it. Um, just know I'm here as a resource if you want me to be, and we could talk specifics for your specific situation, but I don't think I should throw out any more blanket statement advice. I think I've gone far, I've stepped to the edge of the cliff as far as I'm comfortable before um, sending people down a potentially bad path. So is that fair? I think you've taken this perfectly. Yeah. And, and looking at people, these are the only names I'm going to say during this podcast and only because they've come on the podcast and talked about it and used their platform to help steer people away from their own struggles. And that would be Amelia, Boone, Bailey, and Morgan Schultz. All mm-hmm. three of those women when they started their process towards an unhealthy relationship with eating, all three did not begin at the get a body composition scan done. No. Because all three would have been told, you are in a healthy performance place right now. And who knows what would have happened, but it could have shortcut their process and just removed 
the downhill spiral that occurred after that. Maybe it was going to happen either way. But anyone who's in their shoes, I love the fact that you said none of these steps get to be taken unless you start with step number one, which is let's see if we can trust you right now. Mm-hmm. Meaning, are you actually even in need of this? And the second thing is that all three of those women jumped into a version of step number four here or later. Correct. Right into skipping meals, restricting carbs, counting calories, all of those things before addressing A, body scan, and then B, low-hanging fruit. And so the point is that this is like anything else in life, the process has to be followed to this point. And you've now followed it and illuminated, uh, illuminate, you have, you have, you have scripted out a good, safe, healthy process to get to right where we are right now. And this would be the what? Contact a professional place. Like if the easy stuff hasn't worked and the moderate stuff hasn't worked, now it's time to reach out to somebody because the next steps get slippery. These are the steps that are at a steeper angle. And they're safe to take if you've got someone to to, to keep you with a, a rope tied to it. But if you don't, there's a good chance you slip and fall and you're not getting back up. And once you have it, Amelia Boone has been fantastic about this. Once you have it, it's yours for life. You don't beat it. You manage it and you work with it. You can be BDing it for a decade and it can come back immediately. Like those demons are still there. And the best thing you can possibly do is not slip down those steps in the first place. Yeah. And all this comes again with the uh, understanding that we are still trying to fuel our training in some capacity while still progressing in a fat loss capacity. Um, There's going to be a lot of questions still. uh, And that's okay. Their diet is very blurry and confusing. And, and I want to touch on. um, So first I encourage you to reach out to me or somebody Bracken, I know part of this you're probably comfortable talking about. That is something we do or I do anyways. If you're an athlete of mine, it's if we want to talk it, we talk it. Um, and if you're not, then you know you can reach out. But I do want to just talk really quick because I know there's a number of uh, different angles we can still take with this. There's a number of ways. I could talk about this for another three hours and we could get further and further into the weeds and specific foods. And should I do paleo or should I try something called the 80-10-10 diet, which I'm a big fan of? for a two week healthful spur in metabolism, things that like, again, there's so many things that I believe are healthful and also effective, but we're not going to get into it today. You got questions asked. Um, but I did want to just address, and you can stop me if you have things about what we were just talking about, about the guy who she's got too much muscle on him. He knows it. he's lean or she's mm-hmm. lean. They're jacked. They're like, God, I just like, if I could kick this muscle, like, you yeah, know, they're already lean. What do you do then? But you know, like, hey, I'm too bulky for this job and I still want that job. So I just wanted to address that in like five minutes worth of conversation. So, and this sport has a lot of that. It does. The power lifter who got into running and I'm lean, I'm healthy, but I have, I was 240 pounds as a man at 10% body fat. And now I'm right. 200 pounds at 8% body fat but I still have an extra 20 pounds of muscle that's not helping me. What do I do? And Kirk, I never have an answer to this other than you, you got to talk to someone better. No, because I, I don't have personal experience. I don't have training on it. And my feelings about it are not what I need to give out. And so I stay away from giving feelings. I try to only give out truth and I, Maybe I'm not to be trusted on this. And so I don't let myself get in the way. 
So I'm really glad you're bringing this up because there are a lot of people who need to hear this and I can't give them the answer. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to, I didn't want to belabor your things you wanted to talk about. They're like more of a, the, the mindset or the, the, the personal side of it rather than the, the actual physical side. So I think they're good to wrap with. Okay. So you're that muscly dude or woman, like tough life, huh? You're the one who looks great, (laughs) you know, with your shirt off out running on the beach. Like that's rough, but I actually get it because I've, in my later years, I've struggled to lose a little muscle mass. I guess I just had to quit drinking Bracken. I don't know, but, um, (laughs) but, uh, anyways, um, if you're that guy or girl, it's very simple. One, um, and again, I'm not going to go too specific with this because there's no one right answer for everybody in this regard. And that's why I understand you don't want to talk. You don't necessarily know how to perfectly talk about this. Um, you know, raise volume, of course, is one clear way. Change nothing else. We're not looking at changing your diet at all. First of all, we're actually taking diet off the table. If you're somebody who wants to lose a bunch of muscle, keep doing what you're doing. Um, don't change anything. I'm just talking about your workout specifically. And that is increase run volume or cardio volume and change nothing else. Mm-hmm. And then two, um, what I find very effective is simply, you know, and Ryan Kent did this actually in a period of time in his, one of his big breakout seasons in 2017, you know, not that I'm condoning exactly what he did, but he stopped lifting weights. He did Metcon style stuff and did his compromised work or whatever he had did, but everything was done in a high tempo fashion. Um, you know, a lot of you guys and girls are way stronger than you need to be for this sport, right? You're just carrying around extra muscle that really, if you really care about performance, is just drag weight. It's dead weight. It's a sail that's holding you back. It's an anchor tied to the ground. So um, just like detaching yourself from your current style of training, which means, you know, we preach in the off season, like, you know, go do your heavy compound lifts, go do the five by five program with the bench and the squat and the pull-ups and the deadlifts. Um, sure. If you have the build already that you're looking for, of course. Yeah. Like if you're already like, yes, do that stuff. It's going to pay dividends. But if you're the guy who's like, I'm carrying 10 extra pounds of muscle I don't need. I stick them all into like functional Metcon type work. Like let's go and do circuits where we're doing applicable things like pull-ups and farmer carries and all of this and just change your training. Like let go of your need to go get under heavy weight all the time and do it all without like a high heart rate and treat it as a recovery cardio day where you're constantly moving, but you're doing stuff that's actually going to translate to the race course. Um, once, twice a week is enough for you guys and girls who have a ton of muscle, Like you're strong, you're plenty strong. Muscle doesn't go anywhere. Strength doesn't go anywhere nearly as quickly as cardio endurance does. You're going to maintain most of your strength, even if you change your training style. So cut out the functional, like the formal stuff with the two minutes rest, cut out all that stuff, cut out one or two sessions per week. All you need is one or two. If you're that person, replace that time with a little more time on feet. If you really care about your running and and don't put yourself under such heavy load. And when you do put yourself in the gym, you're doing it in a Metcon style in which you're going from one thing to the next to the next, it's almost like a circuit style with movements that are going to translate. That's the best advice I have. So reduce sessions, increase run volume, and you don't need to be doing the bro lifts at all. You're plenty strong. Your ego's already been stroked for years because you've been in the gym lifting heavy weights. Good for you. You can go back to it when you're done pursuing your running dreams. That's great. It'll always be there. But if you really want to try you got to give up on that stuff too. If you've tried for years and you're that person who just doesn't lose muscle mass, that's my suggestion. And it has nothing to do with diet because I don't think you should change a thing. How do you feel about that? 
I think that's really good. Our greatest strength is our greatest weakness. And our greatest strength is oftentimes our biggest mental hangup. Big, powerful dudes worry about losing power. Of course. Big, muscular men or women worry about looking weak. Of course. Those things are slow gains and they're slow losses. It takes a while to get that big. And it's going to take a while to lose that power as long as you're maintaining some functional skill work to, to your equation. Yep. We, we all want it all. Like I want it all. Do I want to be 190 pounds completely yoked and jacked and run faster, faster than I am now? Well, maybe, maybe 180. That'd be nice, I guess. But like, I understand that you can't have your cake and eat it too in this sport. It's impossible. So to a, to a certain extent, and there's a few outliers I know, but, um, you just got to grow a detachment from that and uh, be comfortable reducing. And I just want to tell like all of you strong dudes and girls out there, like you're not going to lose the strength you think you will. And there is some sacrifice that needs to be made on that front. If, if you truly want to take some steps in the weight loss category, but you don't have the fat to lose, it's comes down to your training and it doesn't, your body's going to maintain most of its muscle for the first two to four weeks. You're not going to see a damn change, but then slowly it will start to happen if you stop putting yourself under heavy load and start tra- changing the way you're training. Mm-hmm. So that's what I've seen anyways. Yeah, I agree. That's my five minutes on that. All right. Well, the last thing I want to do is I want to talk to the three portions of the spectrum of people out there for the the mentality, the mindset behind this. That would be the, the low end of the spectrum, the high end of the spectrum, and the middle of the spectrum in terms of intensity of how they approach life. So the people on the high end of the spectrum, the totally performance-driven, their argument to this is going to be, yeah, but look at the best in the world. You can see every bone on their body. They look like a walking skeleton. Look at those people. That proves that if you want to be at your best, you must be at your lightest. And I have a few arguments there, Kirk. The first is that I have lived with those people, some of them. I know some of those people, and I have friends who have lived with, married, or know some of those people. A high percentage of them are in therapy in their later years after they retire. Mm -hmm. Those people that you idolize are accruing damage, physical and mental scar tissue that affects them the rest of their lives. Not all of them but a higher percentage than of the regular weekend warriors are miserable afterwards. And we would look at that and say, I would do anything for a gold medal. And they would look at you and say, that gold medal does not carry you the rest of your life. It carries you for a ways, but you're still left with what you had before the gold medal. So that's the first part of that. The second thing is that there is a reason regular people, and when I say regular, I mean run-of-the-mill non-professionals can't get away with being at below your recommended body fat percentage. And there's a reason that the pros can, and it's called synthetic drugs. Yeah. When you see these athletes out there who are running at hyper, hyper lean, and yet they can handle a crazy amount of volume and they're not getting hurt and their, their hormones aren't out of whack, it's because they're taking synthetic hormones. It's because they are balancing the equation chemically. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The fact is, if you are at that level, you are more likely to be taking drugs than you are likely not to be taking drugs. 
That's just the way this works. And so when we always say, you can't do what the pros do, but look to their ratios, look to the percentages, look to their tactics, look to that. They place such a high emphasis on hormone regulation and on testosterone remaining high and on not having all those dramatic chemical changes in their body that they inject it artificially. Mm -hmm. We are going to have the same drawbacks as they have, except most of us aren't willing or able to do all those drugs that they are. So if you just avoid those few body percentage drops that they have, you don't have to go down that dark, slippery path of where is my line ethically? Sure. Yeah. On top of that, you know, they're working with professionals, sports psychologists. They're working with a nutritionist who's also they're, you're a rotation of all the supplements in the books mm -hmm. um, that you can get over the counter. It is a little funny, like even for example, like to the extent in which Salazar was working with his athletes, like it's coincidental that every single one of his athletes had in quotes asthma and were on prescribed inhaled corticosteroids because yeah. those are proven to increase lung capacity. And thyroid medication. And thyroid medication. They all had thyroid problems and they all had asthma. So they all had to get an inhaled corticosteroid and it, it, like every single thing that you can think of that can just give them a percentage or two uh, was yeah. on the list. And those are the people we look up to. And I, I should say, and you should obviously, you know this, but like, we're not speaking about everybody. There's a lot of people out there doing it right. I just thought to like there are. get that out. A lot of people are out there doing it right. But also a lot of people you look up to are some of the past athletes, especially this day and age is getting a little better. I feel unrealistic expectations. It's tough. Yeah. Was it, uh, was it Morgan who talked about, she went, she went to the Olympic trials to watch when she was injured and she saw all these 800 meter and milers who were just hyper lean and skeletons. And she thought that's what it takes. What she didn't see is what they were doing behind closed doors. So she could only control half the equation and her body broke down. Right. She was missing the chemical half of the equation, which we don't want anyone to deal with. So, so that, that's, that's the part of the pros I want people to remember. And then the final piece of pros is that they're the most fragile people you'll ever meet. Those cyclists, are so lean and they can put out so much power, but if they have to do anything other than cycle, they break apart. A lot of them can't even do one pull up. No. And when, and, and when runners fall over, they get injured really badly. Like they are so fragile because they are the very shiniest tip of the spear at all costs. So do not idolize the body types of the pros because there are so many drawbacks that come with it. So then, Kirk, I want to go to the other end of the spectrum. The, and I would call that the body positivity movement, which is in full swing in this day and age. Body shaming is done. It is not allowed. Body positivity is, is on the front and the foremost of every movement right now, plus size models, all of that. And so people would say, well, how does this align with that? You're potentially encouraging people to lose weight. And this is my response to it. At the core of body positivity is loving your body. Note, no one says like your body. They say love your body. And when you like something, you just really enjoy it and you leave it alone when you don't enjoy it, which isn't super healthy. We've been talking about that if you love someone, you have the difficult conversation. You stand by them no matter what, with no judgment, but you have the difficult conversation. And that's what body love is. In my eyes, body positivity is body love. And body love is standing by your body, loving every inch of your body, no matter what, but also having the difficult conversation and being like, 
I think you'd be healthier. We have some health issues. We're a little slower than we need to be. Having the honest, upfront conversation so that you have room for growth afterwards. Body positivity and body love does not mean turning a blind eye to health issues. It doesn't mean turning a blind eye to lack of performance. It means I love you so much that I am willing to address this with you, even if it's uncomfortable up front, so that we can be healthier long term together. And I think that's really important for people to hear that you can be both. You can be body positive and a high performing athlete. Absolutely. I agree with that. Okay. Yeah. Body positivity movement's a tough, uh, tough one to navigate for me personally. Um, there's a line in which I don't believe it should be preached. And then there's a line in which I think it's completely, it is the right thing to be preached. It's a tricky, it's a tricky one, isn't it, Bracken? And I think everything comes back to loving, love yourself, love others. And the love does not mean shy away from hard conversations or truths. It means address them head on. So the final thing I want to talk about, Kirk, is then the middle. The middle ground of people who aren't like overboard one way or the other. And they're just like, you know what? If I just had this one little piece, then I'd be set. And I think that actually might be the most dangerous mindset to have. If I just had blank, how many times do you hear someone come to you and say, you know what? If I just had blank, I'd be so happy. I'd be set. And that's the kind of person I look at and say, you know what? You're already lost. You've already lost the battle. Because you're going to put too much emphasis on whatever that one thing you want is. And you think it's going to cover up all the flaws that got you to the point where you feel like you're missing something. Mm -hmm. There was this show I watched as a freshman in college on MTV where people wanted plastic surgery to look different so that they could have their life. And there's this one that has stuck in my head now for uh, 15 years. It was a person who wanted to look like Brad Pitt. And he couldn't talk without talking about Brad Pitt. And he couldn't talk about his life without saying, I just know as soon as I look like Brad Pitt, my life is going to, I won't, I won't ask for anything ever again. I won't want anything ever again. I'll never be depressed. I'll, I'll have the courage to talk to girls. Girls will like me. I'll have the courage to walk into business meetings. He was just obsessed with looking like Brad Pitt. And you could see the writing on the wall, right? right? He was the hyper example of, he thinks this one thing that truly no one else cares about other than him is going to cover up all the flaws, the lack of social skills, the inability to talk to people of the opposite gender, the inability to have work ethic, the lack of consistency. But as soon as he got that one thing, he realized, oh, shoot, I'm still the same person I was. I just have medical debt now. And that's the way this weight thing works too. Like if I just had my super shoe, I'd be faster. If I just had this, and the reality always is, If you can't do it without it, with it's not going to be the answer. The foundation's cracked somewhere else. And for a lot of people, if it is not strictly an equation, like I've done everything else right and I have this one thing, there's something missing on the side that you have to address either first or concurrently. Otherwise, that 10-pound weight loss, when people come to me with a specific number, I'm always a little alarmed. Mm Mm-hmm. I know if I just lost 12 pounds, I would be such a dynamic athlete. And I always wonder, why did you choose 12? And what's missing from your athleticism right now? Because those two answers are probably the reason why you think you have 12 to gain or to lose in the first place. Like you're doing something wrong over here that's leading to what you see as a surplus of weight. And that's the fix. Not removing the weight, it's removing the causation. And so I just want people to realize that Whenever you think I'm just one item, one 
X number of weight, one PR away from true happiness or success, that's probably when you're about to make your biggest mistake. Hmm. I'm soaking it in right now, Bracken. Are you? Well, yeah. I mean, that was uh, uh, it was a good reflective speech you just gave there. Because everything is tied together, life and performance and weight loss. And it all comes back to you and like your foundation as a human. And just make sure it is for the right reason. Mm-hmm. Make sure it's not exteriorly motivated. Um, and, and make sure that you truly aren't kidding yourself when you say you have a healthful relationship with this idea. And that's a tough thing to, to come to terms with. Just knowing that your relationship with your idea of potentially losing weight to enhance performance is truly helpful and not dysmorphic or delusional or unrealistic or um, tied to something else. So I think that's a good bookend, to be honest with you, because it needed to be said. So I'm going to leave leave that one there, I think. Okay. Yeah. How do you feel about this? We usually ask each other this off mic. As soon as we stop recording. Are we comfortable putting this out? I'm I'm comfortable putting this out because I've recommended anything I've said in one-on-one conversations to athletes um, that I care about and respect and, and such. So I'm comfortable with it if you are, sir. I am. I'm comfortable with this. Yeah. I I think the biggest thing is everybody's circumstance is different. Everybody's relationship to their performance and their body and their food is different. And if you feel like you're one of those person, persons, you're one of those people who um, aren't quite sure where you stand with all this, like how uh, how set you are and your stability with all of this, I would just suggest reaching out to somebody. And I think the resources you have in front of you are me and Bracken. We we trust and, and value what Rich Ryan does and also Dr. Anna Roby um, in our inner circle anyways. If you feel like you need a little more help, I would just say reach out to one of those four. Start there. And if you're somebody who thinks you, you truly believe you got a healthy relationship with all this, then then give some of those first steps a try and go from there. And then if you run into roadblocks, then reach out. That's what I would suggest. Yeah, my one fear, Kirk is that there'll be a recency bias in this episode. Not in the traditional sense, but that the things that people hear more towards the end are going to be what they remember most. Right, right. And so I'm going to end with my disclaimer again, (laughs) which is there is an order of operations here. And it begins with the first thing we talked about and ends with the last step. It cannot be shortcut if you are a performance-based athlete cannot be. And if you want to do this in the most mentally healthy way possible. So you must begin with step number one and then two and then three and then four and then contact a professional. And maybe along the way you find your, your, your guide throughout this anyway, but you cannot skip steps. So don't come out of this thinking, I'm going to try intermittent fasting right now. No, we have to start with, do I truly need any sort of intervention in my life? And if you can't answer that with a definitely positive yes, you don't do it. Maybe doesn't mean go ahead. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure doesn't mean go ahead. Yes. Scientifically proven yes means I move to step number two. And I really, really, really want people to take that away. 
that the process must be followed or you are setting yourself up for an insidious problem to occur. Kirk, you said the other day, no one sets out to be an alcoholic. No one sets out to develop an eating disorder or an unhealthy relationship with weight or food. And that's so important to know that because every other person who ever struggled with food didn't set out to do it. As I set out to do this, I'm setting out to do the exact same thing that went wrong for millions of people. Right. And so you have to do it with the appropriate guardrails. So please, please, please start at the beginning, not partway through. I second all of those motions, Bracken. I just, I worry always when we put information out that it could be Mm -hmm. misconstrued. And this is one that if you misconstrue, doesn't lead to a lack of a PR. Right. (laughs) You know, this is, this has ramifications. Yep. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up, man. I think uh, reminding people of those things was important because it's easy to, yeah. Remember the uh, the very specifics at the end of that conversation when we got to really remember where the beginning uh, starts. So I think we we gave them enough. I think we've, so we've danced around this one for a long time. So yeah, I think this needed to be a long run episode. I think yeah. it did. And if 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 this is my last thing, if there are takeaways here that you like, you get to we're gonna have a tally of how many times you said this is my last thing. I'm gonna get this. that tattooed on my arm. This will be the last thing I say. <laughs> This is my closing, Kirk. If you, sure. if you think you have a takeaway from this, I think it's mandated to go through a second time. And you have to then say, okay, I like that. I want to pursue it. You have to go through start over again and make sure you get the process right. You have to listen to it a second time to ensure I didn't skip something. We're just jonesing for downloads over here. I think it only counts once per computer. It does. I've checked. <laughs> I've tried. <laughs> I have all my devices downloading. So again, yeah, follow the process. Thanks for bearing with us. Thanks, guys. Thank you.